The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Manus Friedman now presents his lecture, Paradise, Hell, and Reincarnation. So what's with the paradise and the hell thing? Some guy from the university came running to the Chabad house in Minnesota, all in a tizzy, and he's like, he runs in the door without even, you know, a greeting, without a hello. He says, Rabbi, am I going to hell? I said, knowing you, <laughs> probably. He said, no, no, seriously, am I going to hell? I said, what, what's your problem all of a sudden? He wasn't an observant or uh, he wouldn't consider himself religious. Where, where's this question coming from? His roommate on campus is a bit of a missionary, an evangelical. So for half a year, he's been warning him, if you don't convert, you're going to go to hell. So for a while, he humored him, and then he kind of ignored him, and now it's starting to get to him. So he wants to know, am I going to go to hell? So I said, you know, there's a rabbi on campus. You didn't have to come running from Minneapolis to St. Paul. Why didn't you ask the rabbi on campus? He says, I did. And what did the rabbi say? The rabbi said, we don't believe in hell. I said, you don't like that answer? He says, I don't want an answer. I want to know if I'm going. <laughs> he says, if I end up in hell, what am I going to say? My rabbi doesn't believe in this? <laughs> don't tell me what you believe. Am I going? <laughs> so first of all, the expression going to hell is wrong. It's misleading. You don't go to hell. It's not a place. And you don't go there. I mean, what are you going to do there? Nobody goes there. Particularly Jews don't go there. If a Jew goes, he goes to Miami. <laughs> not to hell. Hell is an experience, not a place. And what is the experience? When a soul leaves the body after having gotten pretty attached to the body, after becoming very familiar with earthy pleasures, human pleasures, bodily pleasures, now all of a sudden it's a soul again among souls. If the soul feels comfortable being a soul without a body, that's paradise. But if the soul feels a little uncomfortable because of its memories, because of its attachment to human pleasures, that's embarrassing to the soul. Some fantastic souls come back to the world of souls as if it never left. 
because it never quite bought this whole human thing. But then there are souls that are so attached, that became so enamored with the human condition that even after it leaves the body, it doesn't feel like a soul. It's embarrassed. That embarrassment is called burning. Burning with shame. How else does a soul burn? Over an open flame? So the burning of hell simply means the burning of the shame of being among souls but not feeling quite comfortable. We all go through this experience even while we're alive. It's like going into the synagogue. Now that can be hell because you don't know which book they're reading from. You don't know which page. You don't know when they stand up or sit down. There was a guy who went to South America and he walked into the shul and he didn't understand the word because they all spoke Spanish. So when the, when the people stood up, he stood up. When they sat down, he sat down. At one point, the rabbi said something in Spanish and the guy next to him stood up. So he stood up and everybody cracked up laughing. And he found out that what the rabbi had said was, will the father of the eight-year-old boy in the back please go? That can be hell. <laughs> so if you walk into a synagogue and you don't feel at home, that's, that's terrible. The soul is extremely sensitive, and when the soul is uncomfortable, it's painful. That's called hell. So what happens? How long will it take for a soul that has left the body to, to feel free, unencumbered by those memories, by those pleasures, by those experiences, to where it's just a soul among souls, comfortable being itself? Maximum of 12 months. Very few people need the maximum 12 months. So we say Kaddish for a soul for 11 months. The Kaddish kind of helps the soul adjust. Again, what is the adjustment? Forget the earthy experience. Get into the pleasure of heaven. So that's why holy people their pleasure, even while they were on earth, was kind of heavenly. So when they get to heaven, it's as if they never left. Souls that were not that heavenly while they were alive have a harder time letting go. So it can take a few months. For some souls, a weekend is enough. For some souls, even an hour is enough. Okay, I guess we're not on earth anymore, and you get into being a soul. So the best way to describe hell is to say, every soul 
on its way to heaven goes through hell. Or a more succinct way of saying it is, getting to heaven is hell. <laughs> At least for an hour. Or maximum 12 months. Doesn't that make more sense than uh, flames and demons and pitchforks? Or... See, that's, that's what happens when you take a profound spiritual concept and um, reduce it to a physical nonsense. So what is paradise? What is heaven? Heaven is a soul being a soul. But that's what it was before it was born. What's the point of going down to earth for 80, 90, 100 years just to get back to where you came from? That doesn't seem right. The heaven of a soul that had been on earth and performed mitzvahs is a much greater heaven than the souls who have never left. It's like a child who never went away from home, close to the parents, enjoys the presence, the closeness, but then there's the child that went off to seek their fortune and come back successful. Completely different relationship. So the soul that had been to earth and comes back to heaven not only enjoys being a soul, but it has the additional advantage of having served God, having studied Torah, having struggled for godliness, not taking it for granted. And that makes the soul a much deeper soul and the relationship to God a much deeper relationship. So the reward, which is heaven, is that the soul's closeness to God is much more profound than it was when it first left. Here's a powerful image. When God created Adam, the first human being, that being was male and female. Half male, half female. It's like two sides of a coin. One side was male, the other side was female. The operation was to separate them like Siamese twins and turn them into independent beings. Immediately after God separates the two, he instructs them to get married, to cleave to each other, and become one. Which, of course, begs the question. They were one. God separates them and tells them to get married so they, they become one. Why not just leave them the way they were? And here's the beautiful, the beautiful romantic answer. When they were created, they were one, but back to back. They were joined at the back. When they were separated and told to get married and become one, 
This oneness is face to face. A oneness that is back to back is a, is a factual oneness, but there's nothing romantic about it. A oneness that is face to face, that's much more personal, much more romantic, a much deeper and greater closeness, even though they're separate bodies. But the face-to-face -face closeness, that's, that's intimacy. Back-to-back -back is not intimate. So what happens when the soul is in heaven is it is godly, it is a piece of God, but back-to-back. After leaving heaven, coming down into a body and wrestling with the human impulses and human weaknesses and so on, then your relationship with God becomes volitional. It's by your free choice. Then it's getting to know God, as we spoke earlier. That's a oneness that is face to face. A completely different universe from the soul that never left. So, this explains why a piece of God would come down to earth, struggle with life, and then go back. Having accomplished what? This is why dying, even if you know you're going to heaven, is still not a good idea. So if you have the option, don't do it. <laughs> the expression when somebody passes away, the expression, he's in a better place now, not Jewish. In fact, you can tell from the tone of voice. <laughs> you know, there's a certain tone Jews use. When people say, he, he's in a better place now. Ugh, that's not Jewish. The tone is not Jewish. He's not in a better place. Nicer, yes. Easier, yes. More pleasant, yes. Better, no. Because in heaven you can't serve God. God serves you. It's the reward. We would much rather serve God than get the reward. We would much rather be employed then retired to a very nice retirement home. <laughs> like being here. It's very nice, no? But imagine if you had to stay here forever. <laughs> Just reaping the rewards, being catered to. Yes, it's nice for a day, for a, a week, but after a couple of months, come on. Let me go back to doing something, you know, making a contribution, making a difference. So while you're here on earth, you can make a difference. This is the best place. There is no better. Now, when a soul comes to heaven, what we need to know, and this is really significant and important, the soul remains itself. We always think the soul remains alive. Well, of course, it's a living thing. 
The important point is that it remains itself. Every soul has a personality, and it remains or retains that personality. The non-Jewish image is that when a soul comes to heaven, it becomes an angel. And angels are all alike. You've seen one, you've seen them all. That's not true. The soul does not become an angel because a soul, even before it comes down to earth, is already greater than an angel. So to become an angel would be a step down. It doesn't become an angel, it remains itself. A soul that was very gentle and kind remains gentle and kind. A soul that was aggressive and tough remains aggressive and tough. Somebody was talking about his father who had passed away, and he made a joke. And then he said, oh, uh, is that okay? I mean, can I make a joke about my father? I said, depends. Did he have a good sense of humor? <laughs> if he had a good sense of humor while he was alive, he'll enjoy the joke. If he never had a sense of humor, then watch it. He hasn't changed. And that's the powerful, meaningful part of it. You don't just disappear into heaven and become some heavenly stuff. You remain who you are which it means your relationships remain. You're still related. If you're a father, you're still a father. If you're a mother, you're still a mother. If you're a child, you're still a child. These things don't change. So now the question is, what's with the reincarnation business? Reincarnation means a soul passes away but he hasn't finished his job on earth, so he is born again, given another lifetime, in another body, with the opportunity to complete whatever was left undone in his first trip to earth. So if the soul comes back to earth and becomes somebody else, how is he still related to the previous life? or a funny scenario, you're standing at the grave of your grandfather or grandmother. I don't want to leave out half the population. Uh, and you're there because you want to communicate with your grandmother. So you go to her resting place. But what if she has already been reincarnated? And she's standing at another grave. <laughs> talking to her grandmother. How does this work? Reincarnation does not involve the entire soul. The purpose of reincarnation is to complete something that was left uncompleted in, a, in your first life. So only the part of the soul that is responsible for that project comes back in reincarnation. So, for example, you were not generous enough. You didn't give enough charity in your previous life. You come back 
to make up for it, to do more charity. Well, which part of your soul needs to come back? The kindness, the chesed of your soul is not completed, it comes back. But the chesed of your soul contains all the other attributes as details within itself, so you're a complete person. But it's only a tenth of your soul. The rest of your soul is still in heaven, still what it was before. So yes, it, it's meaningful to go to a grave of, a, of, an, of an ancestor, even if it's been hundreds of years. Because the part of the soul that completed its mission is still related to that body. This gives the body a whole new meaning. No body, two words, no body is dispensable. Because the body is what does the mitzvah. Every mitzvah demands a body. You can't eat matzah if you're just a soul. You can't give charity if you're just a soul. So when does the body get its reward for having served God and performed the mitzvah? It can't go unrewarded. That's not justice. The soul gets rewarded and the body doesn't. The body will be rewarded with a greater reward than the soul because the body does more for the mitzvah than the soul does. The soul has good intention. The body gets the mitzvah done. When will the body get its reward? In the resurrection. After Mashiach comes, every body that served God will come back it decomposed, it will recompose the same body. It will come back, the soul will return, the same soul will return to its body, and together they will be rewarded for the mitzvahs they did. In heaven, it's only the soul without the body. That is not the complete reward. So now we know that the body is much more significant than we thought. That's why we have so much respect for the body. We don't cremate, we don't throw away parts. Every part of the body needs to return to earth from which it came. Because it will be resurrected eventually to receive its reward. So now, what do we know? We know that hell is not a place. You don't go there. You go through the experience on your way to heaven. What about souls that are never going to go to heaven? Well, then they don't go through hell either. Because hell is the path to heaven. If you're not going to heaven... You don't go through the process. Hell salvages the soul. 
by cleaning it up. But when there's nothing to salvage, there's no cleaning. So there are some souls that are so bad, they simply stop existing. They're no longer souls. They, no, they lose their personality. They're not what they used to be. They become generic energy. Maybe that's what uh, the Christian idea of eternal damnation. Eternal damnation doesn't mean punished and suffering forever because that makes no sense. There's no point to it. It's just cruel. Eternal? What's eternal? If you stop existing, that's, that's forever. Because you don't deserve to be punished. Gives us a whole new understanding of what punishment means. Punishment means cleaning up the mess. If there's nothing to clean up, it's over. Forget about it. So let me tell you a story. We have this program called Beis Hana. Started in 1970. Crash course on Judaism for women of all ages. One year back in the 70s, maybe early 80s, a young girl came to the program from Brooklyn. She was actually on her way to Utah. Rabbi Zippel reminds me of she was on her way to Utah because she decided when she was 14, she decided to become a Mormon, which was very strange because she never saw a Mormon in her life. She lived in Brooklyn. And she told her parents that she must, needs to become a Mormon. And they said, do you know any Mormons? She says, no. So, well, why do you need to be a Mormon? Can't explain it. They thought it would pass. It didn't. Year after year, she kept saying, I must become. She was, she was from a day school. She went to a Jewish school. They took her to psychiatrists. They took her to therapists. They took her to witch doctors. Nothing helped. Finally, she's 18 or 17 and a half, and she tells her parents, that's it. I'm going to Utah. So her mother convinced her that from Brooklyn to Utah, you pass Minnesota. <laughs> so would she stop? Would she stop in Minnesota to see maybe she'll change her mind? So she came to the program in Minnesota. There was no talking to her. The first day that she arrived, we sat down. We spoke. Uh, why are you going to Utah? Uh, to find out about Mormonism. What do you want to find out? Whether they're the true religion. How are you going to know whether they're the true religion? You're going to ask them? <laughs> hey, are you the true religion? She says, I don't know. I said, so why are you going there? I have to. She stayed overnight. The next morning, she goes down to the office to call the airline to continue her, her flight. 
as she's talking on one phone, she hears the secretary of the Chabad house speaking on the other phone, telling the, uh, the Baptists how to get to the Chabad house. So she says, what, what, what? Ba Baptists coming to Chabad house? Why? And the secretary says, to learn, I guess. Like, why else? It was going to be two days later. She canceled her flight. She, she had to stay and see this. So here's what happens. Somehow I got invited, when I arrived in Minnesota, I got invited to speak to the Baptist seminary graduating class each year. They graduate the ministers. As a result, I also got invited to speak to the seminary that produces Lutheran ministers, two big centers in Minnesota. Anyway, so these people have been ministers for the first year. They have to come back to Minnesota for like a reality check or something, a four-day retreat, and they asked that one afternoon should be spent at the Chabad house. Why? Because they need to know about Judaism. But that's not what happens. Really, they want to know about Christianity. They want to know what a rabbi thinks about Christianity. So they ask one or two questions about Judaism, then they ask questions about their faith. Very interesting. This happens every time I go there. So 30 ministers show up. There are 60 Jewish women attending Beis Chana, including this girl. So now they're sitting around the periphery of the room, and the ministers are sitting at the desks. So here's how it went. The first question was, what are you not allowed to do on Shabbat? Because the Torah doesn't specify. It says, don't do any form of labor. What does that mean? Good question, huh? So I tell them. Next question was, what is the relationship between Rabbi Akiva and Lagba Omer? I said, boy, these guys did their homework. <laughs> I've never heard that question from a Jewish audience. So I answer the question. Third question, do you believe in hell? <laughs> I said, okay, here we go. They're checking out their own beliefs. So I said, yes, we believe in hell. Hell is the process that gets the soul cleaned up so that it can go to heaven, and it's a maximum of 12 months. To believe that it goes on forever is a form of idolatry and it's not allowed. The 60 women sitting around the room gasped. You can't say that to Christian ministers. They were horrified. But the ministers were relieved. So the Jewish women are gasping and the ministers are having this sigh of relief. Oh good, it was a lousy idea anyway. <laughs> Next question. Do you believe in Satan? 
Yes, Satan is an angel, like all other angels. It gets to do the nasty job, the, you know, the, the ugly work, but it's an angel. An angel means an emissary of God that runs God's errands for him. He's not at war with God. He's not, he's not fighting God. And he doesn't have to be destroyed. To believe that he's at war with God, that's like Greek mythology. You're not allowed to believe that. <laughs> the Jewish women gasped. <laughs> the ministers relieved. Next question was, can God be in a body? Incarnated in a body. I said, yes. Eventually, when the world becomes perfect, God will be in everybody. Because God is limitless. He can, be in, he can be in heaven. He can be on earth. He can be in a body. He can be and will be in everybody. Not exactly what they're taught. They love it. Not completely. Because, you know, we fight him a little bit. <clears throat> More than a little bit. So, it went on like this for a long time. And this girl who was on her way to Utah can't believe what she's seeing. So she's sitting at the edge of her chair. And it was one of these wooden folding chairs, remember? The slats with the flimsy little chair. So she's sitting at the edge of the chair and you know, it looked like from question to answer, like what is going on here? Finally, a guy raises his hand and he says, do you believe in the Messiah? So I said, yes, descendant of King David, Jewish leader, a holy person who will inspire the world to goodness. But it's not enough to believe in Moshiach. You got to do something to bring Moshiach. So the sooner Jews go back to keeping the mitzvot, the sooner Moshiach will come. Not exactly what they're taught. This guy says, is there anything we can do to help? When he said that, this girl sitting at the edge of her chair couldn't believe it. And she leaned forward a little more and the chair tipped over. She fell out of her chair. So I said, what you can do to help Anytime you meet a Jew, encourage him or her to go back to the tradition, to keep all the commandments. And he said, we can do that. Baptists are not what they used to be. <laughs> Beautiful, right? Anyway, the program is over, and this girl comes over to me, and she says, I'm not going to Utah. I mean, what's the point? I'll go there. They'll bring me here for an afternoon. <laughs> so she stayed and became a fully observant Jewish woman whose granddaughter recently attended our program in Minnesota. So what? I'll tell her. <laughs> she got an applause.
So what is the point of all of this? The point is, we all know there's hell. We've been there. We all know there's heaven, because we've been there. When is the last time you were in heaven? I mean, before this. A mother looks at her baby, and there's just nothing better in the world. Everything is wonderful. Is that not heaven? When you can adore your child, is that not heaven? Everything's good. Life is good. The world is good. Everything is good for that moment. That's a heavenly moment. When a husband and wife can look at each other and think, how did I get so lucky? That's a heavenly moment. When a Jew on Rosh Hashanah is sitting in shul and they're blowing the shofar and he thinks, wow, 3,334 years, every one of my ancestors did this. That's a moment of heaven. In other words, when you're comfortable in your skin, when everything is right with life, that's heaven. That's what a soul feels like when it comes back to a world of souls, which, you know, is where it belongs. It's like coming home. The bottom line is, we have to make this world home for God. And when we appreciate what home means, we appreciate what our mission is all about. Home is the most powerful word in any language. When you're home, there's nothing better. Because home means the place where you feel that you belong. Most of our lives, we don't feel like we belong. Why am I here? What am I doing here? Should I be someplace else? Yeah, I'm in a hurry. I got to go someplace else. And when you get to someplace else, you're thinking, what am I doing here? I got to be someplace else. You're never quite settled. But when you come home, if the home is what a home is supposed to be, when you come home, you're in heaven. You're where you're supposed to be which means there's no other place you'd rather be. When's the last time you experienced that feeling? I am where I'm supposed to be, and there's no place else I'd rather be. It's a heavenly moment. When you're home, you're doing what you are meant to do, and there's nothing else you'd rather do. Nothing. And who are you doing it with? the person meant for you. Nobody else you'd rather be with. If you can bring these three things together, there's no place else you'd rather be, there's nothing else you'd rather be doing, and there's no one else you'd rather be with. You're in heaven. The real heaven. You don't have to die for that. For that, you want to live. 
So the word home, when the soul goes back to the world of souls, it feels at home. But if you can make this home, not only for yourself, but for God, how meaningful is that to God? That's awesome. You remember the Entebbe raid? Over a hundred hostages were being held in, in Entebbe. Israeli commandos came in. The world was so impressed, was so, you know, people were walking around saying, they are the chosen people. That was the effect of what happened. They came in, they eliminated the six terrorists and saved the hostages. It was an incredible, incredible achievement. And a very moral thing to do, rather than negotiate with the terrorists. So here these hundred Jewish hostages I remember how long they were there for a while. Not knowing what their future or what their fate is going to be. Now these commandos come in, they eliminate the terrorists. What did they say to the hostages? If you were there, what would you say? Imagine if they said, we came to save you because we love you. Like a Mickey Mouse Club, remember? Why? Because we love you. It, it, would, not, it would not have been appropriate. Nice, but hmm. what they said was perfect. Nothing more powerful. They said, let's go home. That's it. Now, you take that idea and you apply it to God. God created the world and said, please, make this my home. Now you see what home means. And of course, home doesn't mean without you. When God says, make me a home so that I can dwell with you, he doesn't mean without you. So we are the home that God is looking for. Now all of a sudden, every mitzvah, even just one time, takes on infinite value and infinite meaning. You did a mitzvah, you made the world God's home. Not very impressive? To him it is. Because to him, nothing is too small. Nothing is too big. This many years into our history, the world is ready to be God's home. We're just confused distracted, very confused. But if we just clear up the confusion, 
The world is ready to be God's home. We know it. Everybody knows it. There is no other purpose. There's no other meaning. There's no other inspiration. It's God's world. It has to be his kind of world. And we are the other half of that partnership. We are the home that God wants to share. So every mitzvah, even one time, is infinitely valuable. So the Rebbe starts this campaign. Stop people in the street and ask them to do a mitzvah. This was in 67, 1967. And Hasidim were shocked. Just stop a stranger in the street and ask them to do a mitzvah? Unheard of. In the street? How do you do that? Why don't you just invite them to the synagogue, but in the street? And the Rebbe said, no, only in the street, not the synagogue. Because the world needs to become God's home. Not a synagogue here and there. The world, the street. So here's what happens. I'll make this brief. A young Lubavitcher boy, Chabad boy, stops a man in the street and says, excuse me, you're Jewish? He says, yeah. He said, would you like to put on film? He says, no. <laughs> I'm not religious. The boy says, it only takes a minute. And the man says, uh, but I'm not religious, so no. And the boy says, you know, it's a very big mitzvah. You know, the bar mitzvah boy, the first mitzvah he does is putting on a tefillin. The man says, I'm not religious. And the boy says, you know, the Rebbe says that if we put on tefillin, it makes a... And the guy says, we're not communicating. I'm not religious. As he's saying this, the boy is rolling up his sleeve. <laughs> and he's got the tefillin out, and he puts the tefillin on his arm... And he says, say, say with me, Baruch, Baruch, Atah, Atah. You know, I really shouldn't be doing this. I'm not religious. And the boy says, shun, shun, in the middle of a bracha. You, fin <laughs> you finish the bracha, and he puts on the tefillin, and you say, say Shema Yisrael, and he starts to cry. What's going on here? The man is saying, no, thank you, I'm not religious. The boy says, it'll only take a minute. And the guy's thinking, did he not hear me? <laughs> Whether it takes a minute, an hour, a year, I'm not religious. The boy says, but it's a big mitzvah. So wait a minute, what's going on here? Because in the man's mind, putting on tefillin is a religious thing. The boy put on tefillin because he's religious. Why doesn't he understand? I'm not religious, so I should not put on the tefillin. And the boy says, oh, but it's a big mitzvah. What's going on here? It's because the Rebbe taught us, you don't do a mitzvah because you're religious. You do a mitzvah because God asked you to has nothing to do with religious. 
So if you do it even one time and you don't become religious, is it valuable? Infinitely valuable because it's for him. And to him, everything is infinite. So the boy doesn't understand what the guy is saying. <laughs> In the boy's mind, he's thinking, what's with this guy? I asked him if he's Jewish. He said yes. End of conversation. If you're Jewish, here's your tefillin. The guy says, but I'm not religious. And the boy is thinking, don't, don't start, don't start with, 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 with philosophy. Just put on the tefillin because you're Jewish. And the guy is thinking, but you're not supposed to do that if you're not religious. The Rebbe changed our perspective. He changed our view of ourselves, of God, of mitzvahs, and of the street. The streets are a place for godliness because that's where God wants to be. So if you're trying to get to heaven, you're going to pass each other because God is coming down to earth and you're going up to heaven. And when you get there, you're going to say, where's God? And they'll tell you, God is on earth. So do whatever you can to get back there. <laughs> or don't leave in the first place. So the Jewish attitude is, we are here to be God's partners in creation. There's no place else we'd rather be. And what are we doing? Godly stuff. There's nothing else we'd rather be doing. And who are we doing it with? Our fellow human beings, because we're all involved in the same project. Because if it's not all of us, then the project is not complete. We are home. Don't quit. Don't go nowhere. Stay right here. I don't mean here <laughs> in the hotel. I mean, stay involved. Be God's partner. Make the world a little more godly. God wants to be home here with us. So never mind heaven, never mind hell. That's just commentary. The main thing is the next mitzvah we do that brings God a little step closer to being at home in the world that he prefers. It's not heaven. It's here. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.